Hello and welcome to Extrapolator. This is Jeff Allen, and today I'm speaking with Sam Hafkenscheid. For most of this conversation, we talk about God, which is one of my favourite topics. I devoted a whole solo episode to this topic, and it's episode number seven, called Religion, Morality and Understanding Reality. And I think you know at this point, if you listen to the podcast, that I'm most fascinated with the biggest picture questions. I want to trace a dotted line outwards to the biggest implications of certain positions in philosophy. And when it comes to a belief in God, there are so many knock-on effects. It really affects the entire world view. So it seeps into someone's view of morality and meaning and all sorts of other, you know, very big picture worldview level beliefs. So that's always what I'm trying to get at when I talk about the topic of God. And back in episode seven, I touched on these issues as well. I talked about religious beliefs and what that would mean for morality and our wider view of reality itself. And now again with Sam, we debate God and we also talk about the knock-on effects for morality and meaning. Sam and I kind of have a good old-fashioned debate. You know, he takes the, the side of theism, theism being a belief in God, and I take the side of atheism, a belief in no God. So anyway, when it comes to knock-on effects, Sam correctly points out quite early on in the exchange that atheism entails a sort of nihilism. That atheism means no hell and no heaven and no prescribed meaning. And you know, I, I openly and gladly accept this position. So you may have heard me talking about this topic before, which was episode 8, called Optimistic Nihilism. And that's my position about meaning and morality. So I start from a position of nihilism. I argue that there is no prescribed meaning, either from God or from fate or anywhere else. And I argue that that's a good thing. We should be happy about the lack of prescribed meaning because it leaves humans free to create our own meaning. And it leaves humans, you know, we're emphatically responsible for all moral outcomes. So we are accountable we are liberated, and that is optimistic nihilism. That's the kind of big picture tracing out of knock-on effects that we're trying to do in this conversation. We point to implications for morality and meaning and existence and how we know what exists and why things exist, all of which flow from a different worldview about whether God exists or not. And the funny thing is, you know, that Sam and I agree about a lot of ground-level issues, so, for example, we agree about human rights broadly. You know, we agree that people should be respected and should be protected from discrimination, but we have you know, totally different justifications for why that's the case. It's funny to notice that at the ground level, at the level of pragmatic everyday examples, Sam and I often agree, but at the deeper level, at the level of God and metaphysics, we disagree. So anyway, that's a funny implication. There are agreements and disagreements you know, at, at various levels. And it was very fun to debate with Sam. You know, I, I gave you my whole backstory in episode seven that I used to be a theist. You know, I, I used to appeal to these exact arguments, looking to God for meaning and morality and existence. So I used to be on his side of the table when I was about 17. And you can listen to episode seven for more of that backstory. But anyway, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of these arguments. I formulated these arguments from both sides of the table so Sam and I were both already quite well versed in the possible arguments. We were able to dive in quite quickly. And I think we had a pretty sharp, fast-paced, lively exchange that I hope you will enjoy. And maybe we won't change anyone's minds. You know, neither of us have fundamentally changed our minds, but our positions have certainly become more nuanced. So that's what I learned from speaking with Sam. I think that's the value of having these exchanges, that whatever position you do hold, you interrogate it at greater length and you become more nuanced in the way you express these things and you see any potential gaps that do exist. And I admit the gaps in my own argument. I admit that my optimistic nihilism is a bit woolly at times. It's, it's not some deductive thing. It's more of an invitation than any kind of deductive proof. So it's good to have these exchanges and to get all your ducks in a row as, as far as possible. And we do cover some other topics in the conversation. We talk about Sam's career in professional gaming and professional coaching. We talk about creative pursuits more generally, losing yourself in a creative process, metaphors for creativity, like flowing with the river versus creating the river. 
And at the very end, we zoom out and we talk about worldviews. And when I say worldview, I mean a complete package of beliefs about the way the world is. If you've been paying attention to politics in the last couple of years, you'll have noticed that things have become very polarised. There are different packages of opposing worldviews that fight each other all the time in the media. It seems like there's no common ground for any kind of productive exchange. So zooming out, it seems like we have the situation where we have these opposing packages of beliefs, opposing worldviews. And so the question is, are people completely stuck with the worldview that they currently have? Or is it possible to change people's minds? So we kind of zoom out at the end of our conversation because we, we had a debate about God, atheism versus theism. And what we were doing was we were bringing together two opposing worldviews. Sam and I do, in a way, have pretty opposing views of, of how the world is and why the world is the way it is. So we wanted to talk about the prospect of having more of these exchanges in other areas of society and whether it's possible at all to change people's deepest level attitudes. I have to apologise slightly for the sound. We had a bit of trouble with Sam's mic in particular. Overall, I think it's quite fine. It's just a bit less than the usual studio quality that I, I like to strive for. So I hope your ear adjusts to any slight echo on the mic. And I hope you like the music in this episode. It's actually music that I wrote for the first season, and I used it in episodes 7 and 8. Because this conversation with Sam about God and religion and meaning, it's kind of a continuation of my solo exploration of these topics in episodes 7 and 8. So it seemed like the right time to resurrect that music. So the music cues throughout the episode are all snippets from a four-minute track, which plays in full at the end. So keep listening at the end if you want to hear the full track. It's, it's a song about atheism and naturalism and meaning, so it's topical. So without further delay, I bring you Sam Hafkenscheid. So I'm very excited to be here today with Sam Hafkenscheid. I know I butchered that. I was going to call you Sam H. So, uh, Sam, thanks for joining me. More than welcome. It's my pleasure. So I want to start with the kind of a more informal part about your kind of background, your interests. Uh, you've got some interesting life experience as a professional gamer, so that's very fun to talk about. But first, let's kind of roll back slightly. Your experience at high school, how did you find that? Did you find kind of formal education stimulating and interesting or did you kind of want to take a different path? It is a difficult answer because it has two sides. On the one hand, education has helped me a lot, right? It, it molds you as a person. On the other hand, right, I never really felt intellectually stimulated in the sense that uh, I'm like, wow, I'm really learning the big things. It always felt like I'm getting facts and, you know, I'm getting some methods and some tools. But when does the real thinking start, right? Where we're asking not just, you know, how do we solve this problem, but why do we care about this problem? And why is this method correct? Sure, it gets the right answer, but it might be for the wrong reasons. And so that's something I always found lacking in at least high school. And even in my bachelor's in physics, I sometimes felt we were just solving puzzles. And then you, you chose physics for your undergrad. Have you felt you've moved away from that now or has it shaped your current path that you're on with philosophy? It has provided me with the tools I need to express my thoughts in a coherent and systematic manner. It has taught me a lot about how to approach the natural world in a sense that you do not get overwhelmed by all the details that are present in all the experiences you take, but really be selective in what are the relevant events, how do we sort them out, how do we relate those events. So that has really been useful. And when it comes to philosophy, are you happy with your kind of your choice of current discipline? Do you think it's the most useful way to tackle the problems you're currently most worried about? Or do you, do you feel like you're going to go a different direction in the future with some other type of knowledge making or other kind of intellectual discipline? I do not know, because the problems I'm interested in, I've always been interested in, which are uh, physics, evolutionary biology. And I've you know thought about those before I did my master's. I thought about them, I'm probably going to think about them after. And my master's really was or is a way to see if I like the academic world and also in a sense to see where I'm at intellectually, right? How I compare to others. So you, you get a bit of a feel for my thoughts, my capacity to 
transform information and ideas into coherent systems of thought, how does that compare to other people and how they do that, right? So in a sense, you do not understand your own thoughts unless you have someone to compare it to and see how they do it differently. Because otherwise, you know, it's really easy to deceive yourself and that this is the only way. And let's move on to talk about your experience of professional gaming, because I find this fascinating. I have no experience whatsoever with gaming, apart from dabbling with a couple of games as a kid, like Ratchet and Clank or the Harry Potter games. And then I did actually, I was a Skyrim player. Um, that's the one game that I feel like I played seriously. But uh, I think I'd still be a noob, um, which you'd stylize N00B if I was to be uh, seen from the outside. Uh, so kind of talk to me as, a, as an amateur. I know your game is Dota. If I'm pronouncing that in the right way. Yes, that's the right way. It's called Defense of the Ancient, or in short, Dota. And so tell me about what kind of what makes it special or different, and why did you fall in love with that specific game? So it is very similar to chess, and it's very strategic. Except, I would say, unlike chess, the big difference is that you're working in a team, and you have to make real-time decisions. So your decisions are at the same time when the opponent is making the decisions. So unlike with chess where you're trying to, you know, respond in the best way possible, you're not just trying to respond, you're trying to predict in the best way possible what is going to happen so you're already ready to react. I played chess, I really liked it. I've got, I think, two cups at home for like when I was a kid. And so the strategic element, the thinking it through, the being ahead, right, the really outplaying someone, really reading them like a book, that's what I really like about the game. And that's what got me into that. And I think I've accrued enough experience, right? I have played for roughly 13,000 hours and coached for probably another 5,000. And the overall time I invested in Dota is probably about 20 to 25,000 hours. So like, I, I'm definitely knowledgeable on the topic. And this is also the fact that I've been able to turn it into a job, uh, a way of, with hindsight, justifying the fact I have not always performed as well in high school and my bachelor, because I wasn't actually that interested in everything there and more interested in the gaming part, which was more of a challenge because I sometimes lacked that in my studies. Yeah, that's incredible. Do you think that, you know, you'd recommend this path to teenagers now? Do you think it's a viable way to make a living if they really love gaming? Yes, but with the disclaimer, even if you make a company, which is, you know, a generally accepted way, you take a risk. And what you have to do is make sure that you weigh the risk reward ratio and have a backup plan. Because yes, I do think it is worth pursuing if you're really passionate about it. But then you have to be really passionate and pull through the hard times. Because if you just like it, and you have the the wet dream of becoming a Dota player, but you're not really you know willing to spend hours in lobbies perfecting your personal skill, your combos, and you kind of just, you enjoy the hype, but you're not willing to invest the time, then you're probably lying to yourself and that this is what you want to do because you're not willing to put in the effort. It is hard and there's no guarantee, right? Skills is the prerequisite, not the guarantee of success. But yes, it, it can be worthwhile, especially if you enjoy the journey, right? And you think that's more important than a result because if you just want to make money, there's better ways to do that. But if you like the challenge to yourself, go for it. I do think that's worth pursuing. I think that's great advice to in any creative field. Uh, so I spent years playing with the band when I was a teenager and college student and one of the most dedicated guitarists I ever knew was a guy called Shawnee and he had this incredible attitude of loving the process not the goal and I didn't understand this at the time I was about 21 and we were like all about the goal we just wanted to have songs written and recorded and have gigs played and he was the one who was waking up at 6am to like rehearse guitar endlessly for hours and for him he honestly I've never seen someone who loved the process of improving and playing as much. He wasn't fixated on any kind of outcome. He really did love like the process itself. It made me realize that I didn't have enough of a love for the process to justify me getting there. And it, you're never going to make it against those kind of people because they love doing it so much on the minute to minute basis that you're not going to keep up in the end. They're going to get the edge. So maybe it is about finding a certain field where you do love the process enough, finding a, a job or an outlet where you love the process enough to, to get really, really good at it. But I think you get weeded out pretty quickly if you're just doing it for the outcomes, as I think I was at the time. Yes, and, and that's also something that ties into how I you know, approach coaching. I always tell people, you should not focus on winning the game. You should focus on playing really well in the moment 
Really be in the moment, right? Play like your life depends on it. Everything that happens on the screen is important. If you do that, winning will be the result. If you focus on the result, you're thinking about things that you cannot affect yet. And if you're not fully thinking about the things you can affect and someone else is, you're going to lose out on them or you're going to lose out to them. And it's similar when, when I was grinding MMR, which is like the ranking, like the matchmaking rank. And I was never really good at that. I found it a soul crushing business. Playing alone with four random people that are screaming at you in foreign languages, and it's always your fault, is not a very enjoyable environment. We, I would call that a, you know, generally a toxic environment. Uh, and the one thing that I did right to get me through is mute people, that's one. But also, I, I stopped looking at my rank um, I stopped looking at my MMR and just play, play, play. And eventually, right, I got up to like rank 650 or something in Europe. And that's also when I kind of quit because I, I, I didn't really think it would be worth investing more. And I didn't really care about the rank. But during that whole process, I didn't look once. You get a general idea. Once you see the number of where you are in the leaderboard, you kind of have an idea of what your rank would be. But I... On principle, never looked at that number because I thought the moment I'm going to look at that number, I'm going to worry about losing more points or gaining points. or And that's going to take away the very foundation that got me to this point. Yeah, and I think it sounds like such a contradictory piece of advice to say to someone who wants to be successful or wants to achieve something to say, stop looking at the outcome. But I think it's true that you just have to you have to lose yourself enough in the process that the outcome just happens as a result of you enjoying the process. Yeah, and I think this is my way of thinking about it, of how you create success. And there's exceptions, right? But in general, success is a process in which you're like, in a sense, like water, right? Like you're flexible enough to flow with, you know, the river, but you're also able to create a river in a sense, because if enough water flows right, it also changes the curve of the river. So it's about having enough goal that you, you have a line you can pursue, but also having enough flexibility that you can go around the rocks, right? And you can follow your own path with the river. So let me dig in a bit and ask you how you feel about organized religion. So my own context growing up in Ireland, it was a very religious country until very recently. And I was kind of living more with the, the tail end of that, you might say. One of the biggest issues is that there's no separation of church and state still after all this time. So, you know, to, to get into the schools that you would like to go to, you have to say that you attend mass. Uh, and we did attend mass. I mean, my parents very cleverly, you know, we used to not go to mass for a long time. And then suddenly we went for about 12 months when I was, you know, 11 or 12. And then we came to this interview for high school. And in the interview, I was asked, do you go to mass? And I just said, oh, yeah, we go to mass. And I didn't think about it at the time, but it was a perfect setup where my parents put me in a position where I wouldn't even have to lie because it would just be a truth that they had constructed uh, for the situation. And I mean, their own position is not necessarily clear cut. I think my dad's more agnostic or my mum is more of an atheist, perhaps. My grandparents uh, were all very religious. So, I mean, that's all the backdrop I'm coming with. Now, as a 26-year-old, I'm quite critical of religion. And I, th I think that we have evolved a long way past needing religious beliefs. And I think that there are many arguments for why we can do things without religion completely in a naturalistic and secular way. And we should, I think we should, you know, cut religion loose pretty much. How do you feel? Well, I mean, I agree that you can do a lot of life without religion. Absolutely. I do not like the idea that you need religion. I mean, it depends on your goal. If you just want to survive, religion is optional. Though it does seem to provide some evolutionary benefits in the simple sense that um, selection pressure against religion hasn't been particularly strong and it seems to have arisen in a lot of contexts and it seems to have provided a unifying way for people to guide their behavior in a meaningful manner, which means that if I can predict what you're going to do because you adhere to the same religious principles as I do, that means that we can do business because I, I know what to expect. If you know that if you steal my money, there is someone who's not very happy and that's more powerful than me, you might not steal my money. So to say it's useless seems to be maybe a bit too much, but I do think you can do a lot of life without religion. When it comes to religion and atheism more general, I have to say that I think we need to be careful. My little brother recently started reading Bertrand Russell, and he discussed that with me. 
And in the discussion, we said, or basically, you know, also taking into account people like Richard Dawkins and other more prominent atheists, not that smart people like Graham Oppie, right? Graham Oppie is top-notch atheist. I, I, that, that's the atheist I can live in a room with, philosophically, right? That's a smart person. But a lot of those philosophical atheists are just dogmatic naturalists. I, I know my little brother talked about, you know, one of things in Russell he didn't like, which summarized was basically, miracles can't happen because they are in conflict with natural law. And that seems just to be begging the question. <laughs> it's like, miracles can't happen because they go against natural law. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, what do you respond to that other than, well, how do you know that that is not allowed by reality, right? Like, where do you get the idea that you're already assuming wonders cannot happen or miracles, and then you're saying, well, see, they can't happen because I assume they can't happen, which is fine, but it's it's dogmatic, right? Atheism, at least for me, is most productive when it's sharp and honest intellectually and doesn't try and take the good parts of religion, but is willing to look into the abyss and simply accept, in a sense, the pointlessness of existence and a lot of other things without saying that therefore life life is meaningless per se or that we cannot do things right but at least admitting the fact that some things we like are lost so you can't go to heaven if there is no god you can't go to hell but hey heaven is no longer on the table either i think that that type of atheism i can respect but similarly dogmatic theism i i'm not a fan of either i think most fundamentally i do not like dogmatic philosophy because there's no conversation possible and I suppose I'm a little in between, right? We've talked about this before, where I would say I'm a theist, but not maybe the cookie-cutter theist in the sense that I am. I have dogmatic answers. I'm, I'll tell you when I become dogmatic and simply take things as an article of faith and when they're no longer supported by reason or anything. There's two things I want to pull apart here. Well, first is the kind of the nihilism you pointed to, that, you know, atheism means accepting no heaven, no hell. That's great. And I'm a person who does accept that. And as you say, I'm an optimistic nihilist, as I defended in episode eight of the podcast, that I think that, you know, we can we can have a very positive view of the fact that there's no heaven and no hell and just this is it. And we lose things. And that's actually quite pleasant. Let's let's get back to that in a second. But I want to pull apart something else first. So I love your explanation of that religious beliefs are useful. It's an argument that I've made myself in the past. In the naturalistic picture, we can explain religious beliefs. They do indeed promote cohesion social cooperation in the same way as currencies and economies and countries. So I, I find it hard once you have that very satisfactory evolutionary explanation of what a religious belief is, how it's useful, why it arises, how you can then still subscribe to the content of the belief. So I think that's an argument why it doesn't necessarily say that it's not true, but I think we can explain it being useful and being accepted in spite of being true. It's a, for me, that's a very satisfactory explanation. So how can we still subscribe to the content of such a, a belief? Well, a lot of science is very useful. And we know how it was constructed by people in the lab making theories. And still we believe there's more to it. So knowing the origin of a belief, knowing how it was constructed, knowing why we use it, seems to have little if no bearing on why we believe it to be true. So... I mean, I can opinionate further on this, but I don't think there's much to say as in whether you believe the moon is not made of cheese because you read it on some weird online conspiracy blog or on, you know, a scientific news outlet. Either way, if you claim the moon is not made of cheese, then arguably you are right, regardless of how you got to that belief. Does that make sense? I think this was called by someone the genetic fallacy. I don't like fallacies and debunking. It's such a... It's a, such a debatey thing, but I do think we, we can be careful to not dismiss the belief because now we know how it arose. A lot of practices in science arose out of very, what you might now call, superstitious reasoning, and still we continue because we think they're valuable. I would distinguish them based on the truth claims that they make, though. I think that, you know, scientific beliefs, this is begging the question, but I think that scientific beliefs are, they're useful for technological reasons. But I think that the core of what they're trying to do is describe the world accurately. And I think that they do succeed in that. Whereas I think religious beliefs, I think that the at least the evidence says that they don't describe the world accurately. And they also can be explained as arising on usefulness alone. So I think it paints a more damning picture that, you know, science is useful, but we have 
strong evidence to say that it's also true. Whereas we can now explain religion as like, well, why do we believe it even though it's not true? Ah, because it was evolutionarily useful. Okay. Usefulness is only defined with respect to a goal. So when I say religion is useful, I do not mean that in an objective way where I can measure its usefulness. I can only say, right, if you really want to press me, that people or groups of individuals which have organized religion outcompete in evolution groups that do not. So it is useful if you want to outcompete them. No one says you should. But it simply means that if you look around, you're not going to find those that don't do it because they're no longer around, which doesn't mean it was the goal for them to no longer be around. I'm very careful when you talk about usefulness of belief or science, what does that mean? For you, it's not useful. Oh, that's cool for Jeff. I can agree that for Jeff, it might not be useful. That doesn't necessarily say anything about the truth as an objective, more than just a personal article of faith. Can I give you an argument from Richard Dawkins, which you probably are going to hate? Well, not necessarily hate, because this isn't... I don't hate Richard Dawkins. I just think he's not a particularly good philosopher. That's a fair criticism. Uh, but this argument, I think, is quite convincing. And it's, you know, it looks to evolution again, which I think is a common ground for both of us. So he says that evolution selects for blind faith in children. Because it was evolutionally beneficial to trust or obey your parents, you know, information about food or danger. The children who obeyed the information probably stayed alive. And the children who didn't obey, who didn't trust the information, you know, got themselves killed. So there seems to be an evolutionary pressure in favour of, you might call it, blind faith or trust in parents. And Dawkins says a byproduct of that is that, you know, it selects for arbitrary religious beliefs that they get passed down from parent to child. So again, this is not necessarily a positive argument against religion, but it's just a way of explaining how it arose and how children who believe are almost selected for and religious beliefs are passed down just as much as information about food and danger. Well, perhaps that is true. Again, that doesn't mean the belief is wrong. And secondly, do you not think that I can give an equally satisfying evolutionary description of your belief or adherence to science? Which again, you would say, well, that doesn't mean therefore that I use science or believe it is more than just, you know, an artifact of evolution would be, you know, disqualify that belief. So because there is a reason to say, well, a scientific worldview has evolutionary benefits or reproductive benefits for those in intellectual circles in which, you know, uh, if you want to find a partner in an intellectual circle that is mainly naturalistic, you do good to not have too much of a conflicting worldview, which, again, doesn't mean, therefore, the worldview is right or wrong because we can explain why it still exists. If religious belief would be leading people to walk off, you know, cliffs and jump off buildings, then the belief would not be around very long. So evolution is certainly acting on those that believe, but it acts on everything and everyone that believes. And so you can only make this claim and think it's useful if you believe yourself outside of the system as an observer, a god who's looking at this world and not all these dumb theists, and you have just jumped out of the evolutionary cycle and so I would simply say that is an article of faith that your position in evolution is better than someone else's position. And even then, let's get very critical here. If you believe that it's only evolutionary determined and that it cannot be fixed by argument, why even engage in debates with people? If you do not believe there's a goal to life, live and let live, I'd say. That's the easiest thing. Why would you, in an almost evangelical manner, try and convince people that you are right about something that doesn't matter in the evolutionary long run, lowers your own fitness because you're wasting resources on converting people that you're spending making kids yourself, just you know, out out populating people with your belief, because then it's just an evolutionary horse race of beliefs. I want to disagree, but first I love that example of sexual selection based on beliefs in evolution. Like if if you go to the bar and you start spouting theism as opposed to atheism, whether that makes you more or less likely to copulate and procreate. I think it's a very funny way of conceptualizing our, uh, the future of the human species. It's, uh, it's not most accurate because I don't think evolution or natural selection operates in terms of forces and everything, but um, I am trying to walk a fine line between being understandable and at the same time being technically correct enough that I'm not, you know, stepping on someone's long academic toes who's going to say... Actually, <laughs> no, it's a fun example. And I love that you're, you're putting atheistic beliefs in the same in the same box as theistic beliefs and that they're all just 
selected for and they're all you know p- passed down from parent to child usefulness or non-usefulness uh, aside you know evolutionary speaking i can say atheists um have an evolutionary role to play because they create the public enemy for the theist so the theist community can continue to exist because there needs to be something at which to combine against so you play a very important evolutionary role in keeping theism alive well, you're already begging the question by supposing that the goal of evolution is to get to a position of theism. My friend, it was a joke. <laughs> well, a joke with a, a, a letter of truth in there. And just to backpedal slightly to your comment about, you know, live and let live, especially as a nihilist, should, should I really care about promoting one belief over another if, you know, if I really did believe that life was meaningless? But I think that we should kind of focus on some case studies where sometimes it does become zero sum between religious beliefs and secular beliefs. So there's an example I talked about in episode seven of the podcast, that there was a bakery in Belfast in 2014, which refused to bake a cake with the slogan, support gay marriage, because they said that they didn't support gay marriage. So they had a right to discriminate to say, we don't want this customer and this cake because we don't, you know, we don't endorse the slogan. And it becomes a battle of rights. You know, it's, so on the side of the bakery, there's a supposed right to freedom of expression or freedom of religious belief. But then on the side of the customer, there's this right to be free from discrimination. So it seems to be zero sum. You know, we can't have we can't have both freedom to discriminate based on religious belief and freedom from discrimination you know, based on arbitrary things like homosexuality. So it's all very well to say live and let live and let everyone believe what they believe. But sometimes it will come down to a clash between religious views and atheistic views. And this is where Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, I know that they seem overbearing in their approach, but I think their their core argument is that sometimes there's a cost to pay and the cost is too high. And we, we need to assert atheistic beliefs in these zero-sum situations. So, you know, discrimination based on religious beliefs is not allowed. I know, how do you feel about that? It's just, you know, again, taking hopefully their evolutionary perspective, it's just society that is a social construct created by many people that you don't have rights, you just exist. People determine their rights in terms of just rules of how they're going to engage with you. Those rules are malleable. You can change them, you cannot. Might be in your interest to change them, might not. Speaking about fundamental rights, I can only do that if you believe there's a God who's going to judge you at the end of time for there's an objective good and bad. If you're just a non-believer and you believe in no higher power and everything is evolution and there is no objective morality in the universe, I find it hard to take issue with what happened. It's just a process evolving through time in which social interactional norms are negotiated between people. Okay, it's part of the process. And to have a strong opinion about that seems to think there is some objective moral value, namely, this is good or bad. Uh, And if you do genuinely believe that, I think you have to go back to your fundamental beliefs and say, well, that's where I think I'm allowed to point out that your reaction of indignancy seems to be incompatible with the fundamental beliefs you hold on the level of worldview. Or at least there's no justification other than I'm just angry and I can ignore you because you're just a weird organism that gets angry for no apparent reason. No, I hear your comments and I agree that I don't believe in fundamental rights in terms of I don't believe that they have any objective existence. And I studied law and philosophy as an undergrad. And my main reaction the whole way through is that human rights are just a fiction, but that's fine. So, you know, that's a metaphysical question. Are human rights a fiction? I would say yes. But then, you know, leaving that aside for a second, we can still rise to the higher level of psychology and politics and say there still exists uh, these shared fictions between human beings. And talking at that level, you know, some rights are better than others. There is no there is no set of correct or objectively better rights but there are still pragmatically better sets of rights. And this is the argument that I'm making. You know, I don't want to be dogmatic, but I want to say that at the level of pragmatism and the level of human emotion and human flourishing, the set of rights that says a freedom to discriminate based on religion against homosexual customers is a bad set of rights. And we should be opposed to that set in favor of a secular set of rights, which doesn't allow such discrimination. It seems that your discussion with respect to, um, for example, the idea that rights are fictions, but leaving that aside for now, is, you know, basically the equivalent of us planning a road trip and just leaving aside that we don't have a car. That makes no sense. Like, if you want to go on a road trip and plan it all out and go there, then the car is vital for that road trip. And so we cannot just say we believe that rights are fictional, but, you know, 
leaving that aside, no, that is very fundamental, it seems. Like, the whole road trip depends on that. And just pretending it's not seems to mean that somewhere in your ultimate values, you kind of want to snip a little bit of that comfort of objective morality so you can claim the moral high ground in a debate. Which, evolutionary speaking, is very smart, but <laughs> when it comes to truth, seems disingenuous. I'm not saying that you are disingenuous, because I don't know your motives, and I think we're all trying to figure it out. And I might make mistakes, and I want the same kind of forgiveness when I make a mistake, because I'm not out here to deceive people, nor you. And I want to get to know you, right? As Jeff, I want to see why you think what you think. But I, I do genuinely believe that in this case, that is not a trivial thing to just pass over. Because for me, it becomes just a struggle of power between different group dynamics and norms. And if you have the biggest group and you can push your way of doing it, then that is the objective norm in that local environment. And if you want to throw people off buildings for their sexual orientation, everything goes, evolutionary speaking. It doesn't mean I think it's right, because I do believe in a God that created people equally, every individual is sacred and holy, and I have to respect their existence. But if I take the naturalistic approach, I wouldn't even be killing you, Jeff. I'd be rearranging your molecules. That's a different <laughs> way of life. And it makes very little sense to even talk about you being alive for me within that worldview. Are you having rights? Do particles have rights? No, but apparently some collections of particles do. What, to not be rearranged? Well, you're getting rearranged constantly internally. What makes one configuration more preferable than another? Other than that, the only thing that's preventing me from doing it is on this view is that there might be consequences of other aggregates of matter like police that are gonna you know try and pick me up for you know killing jeff or the fact that jeff might you know be stronger than me probably is <laughs> and fight back which might put my own existence in jeopardy other than that i don't think there's any moral claim i can make for not killing you because there is none there's only me taking into account the consequences for my future existence which i don't want to lose and based on that i wouldn't do it and that's also why I think if you're Richard Dawkins and you want, you know, to get your cake and you want to be treated equally, you just say, well, it seems reasonable to just become a theist now. Because that's all that matters for achieving your goal. But apparently the goal is more than that. It's truth. But what does that mean on this evolutionary, physicalist worldview other than just a power struggle? So it depends what factor we're looking towards. I think you're emphasizing power and fitness and, you know, almost survival of the fittest at the at the level of human beings. But I still think we've come so far past those evolutionary pressures. So I, I do believe that we came from those historical pressures, but we're now living in a society where there are other constraints that define our morality, such as flourishing. It's a very loose term. Eudaimonia, the Greeks called it. But, you know, we can look to these measures of human happiness and even more broadly, you know, animal welfare, the environment, these are the conditions that I would look towards as a naturalist to define my moral system. So I don't find any need to appeal to, to theistic commandments to tell me what things have value and what don't. We can look to other constraints like the welfare of humans, animals, the wider environment, and we can have a set of rights based on fictions. So many features of human life are narratives. So identity is a narrative that you tell yourself and tell to each other. I think even romantic love at a time is a narrative and it's nothing against romantic love. I mean, I think one of the most wonderful things about it is that it is completely terrestrial and biological in my conception. And it is a story that we tell to ourselves and to each other about our life and how we're living it and how we're defining our happiness and, and so forth. I think that rights fits into those pictures that political rights are another story that we tell, just like stories we tell about the euro stories we tell about the, the US Constitution. None of these things exist outside of humans, and yet they're still valuable and they still have moral significance because of the way that not only you believe in them, but that everyone collectively believes in them. So we have rights about discrimination or freedom, and of course they don't exist at the level of particles. They don't exist on Mars or in the Andromeda Galaxy. Of course, why would they? But they're still incredibly important and morally significant to us as human beings. I think that is, I think that's a consistent position to hold uh, on a naturalistic worldview. Um, I would actually agree with almost everything you say. If you value flourishing, then yes, a lot of the things you say might follow. Except me and probably a lot of theists and other people don't think flourishing is that important. Doing your duty, responsibility, right? Carrying the burden of suffering in life. I'm thinking about Dostoevsky, right? 
like a lot of his work also emphasizes the idea of life meaning, right? Genuine meaning or like not happiness or flourishing, but contentness with life, right? Being able to, to be happy with the fact that or like being able to carry the burden, right? Not just hedonistic pleasure, right? Comes from carrying a burden instead of chasing happiness, which is like a side product in a sense. So then there's just this fundamental level at value, which you cannot convince other people other than saying, perhaps you can convince them by showing that if you adhere to your value of flourishing, then people seem to do better or other people want to join your system because they think there's something in it for them. Other than that, I think you still ultimately back the question of why should I value flourishing? So yes, you can derive those things objectively within your subjective value of flourishing or happiness, which again, I think you're not really gonna convince anyone that doesn't share that value and that seems to be a significant portion of the world. When it comes to narratives, I agree. I've tried to make sense of the fact there is suffering in the world, given there is a quote-unquote good God, though arguably there is no good or bad God, there's just an inevitable God and it doesn't matter whether you think he's good or bad, there's not even objectively good or bad, there's just these are the consequences of being bad, you go to hell, these are the consequences of being nice, you go to heaven, which is very simplistic, right? I'm not gonna pretend there is not more to it because there's a lot, lot, lot more to it, but we're doing a simple podcast and I don't wanna, you know, go into dogmatic theology. However, given that, right, it seems that for time to even move, right, like for not for time to move, for things to change, right, maybe God isn't trying to achieve a goal with life. Why would he? He's perfect. Like he doesn't need anything. But maybe the one thing that God likes to do is experience in time. And for that to happen, for things to change, there needs to be, at least for God, a reason to change them. And so you need, in a sense, imperfection to create the narrative. Because there, a story that just opens with everything was fine, only close the book, there's nothing to write. Every interesting story that's worth remembering seems to have some aspect of overcoming a problem, right? Growing bigger than yourself. And maybe life is just a simulation to create interesting stories that God enjoys reading about. Not saying this is explaining everything, but right in that sense, what happens here, right? It's not about achieving anything. It's about at the end of your life, having an interesting story that's worth remembering in, in God's mind. And so taking that, you know, look on reality, I do agree that all everything is a narrative in the sense that it's, it's not about the particles or where they at. It's about the, the relational part about, you know, combining narratives, having multiple people, you know, um, overcoming a big challenge, right? The highs, the ups, the lows. That is what makes life interesting to God. And that might be the very reason we exist because it seems you might ask, why not create a perfect world? Because that's uninteresting. And so the reason every creation that God might make is not perfect is because it's the only type of creation worth making because it's interesting. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Not saying it's correct. It's a lens to look at why life is so weird and messy and why we're having this discussion to begin with. And I take your point that I will struggle to convince anybody of, you know, my naturalistic, optimistic nihilism who's not already convinced because I, I do agree that there is no deductive proof to say that the world is meaningless and we should be happy about that or that there's no deductive proof to say that flourishing is the condition we're striving for. That's part of the problem of my position is that I'm a nihilist and just as I think that rights are fictions, that completely negates any possibility of me saying that there is one correct right or that there is one correct condition like flourishing for morality to strive towards. So I will always struggle with this circularity of trying to prove one system over the other. All I can say, it's just kind of a broad invitation that says, I think I can prove that life is meaningless. I think nihilism, there's a much stronger argument there. But I think that if you're going to be an optimistic nihilist, I just have to say that that the overall condition of humans and animals and the planet in a way that we can all flourish in small ways, I suppose, and in fleeting ways, because as a nihilist, we're all going to die and, you know, rot and turn to ash. But I still think that on a very small scale of individual organisms, individual animals and humans, and on a very large scale of the whole ecosystem of the earth, and that sustaining for possibly a lot of generations in the future, it seems important to consider 
it seems important to consider the whole ecosystem and all of the the the, the requirements of flourishing of the individual organisms and that's kind of the broad way that i see optimistic nihilism coming into effect and i can never have a deductive justification to say that it's the way to see the world but i think that uh I think I can provide a nice invitation that it's a an attractive and productive way to see the world and one that's in keeping with science. Well, I would definitely agree that you you do not seem to violate science. Though I do think there is this high level of cool story bro where it is just you giving your ideas and then, you know, in giving an invitation for me to take those ideas from your ideas which I think are valuable. Though I I still would say that at least for me given what I know right I have very little reason to suppose there is not more than the natural, which doesn't mean that, you know, the natural definitely exists. And it doesn't deny that maybe there is nothing more than the natural. It simply means that I think it is not reasonable to just say there is nothing more. Again, just say, I don't know, perhaps, perhaps not. And just as you, right, require a photon to explain why you experience light, I require God, in a sense, to explain why things exist to begin with. Which isn't to say that you could perhaps imagine that experiences exist in of them own without a source, but it seems unreasonable to say it. It's like, it must have something external, right? It just doesn't pop into existence, right? Like, that seems somewhat conceivable, but we don't like it. And I have a similar thing with the universe as a whole, where I feel I require that to close the circle. Not to prove it, but to close the circle and make the whole comprehensible. Time is just a variable by which we denote the changes of state. And so there must be a, a first state. A f so there is a, a certain thing before time. There's a state before the first change. So before time exists, there is something that exists before time exists. Because time, in a sense, starts existing when there's change. And so to change, there must be a state before the change of state. That seems to be the absolute. Because what can change, put things in motion, right? Without being itself put into motion, because then it wouldn't be the beginning. Now, that is where I feel a mind, a god, seems to just naturally pop up as a, well, if I have to make a best guess, I'm not going to put anything natural there because that seems to require causal, right? Every law, I think, almost like how I perceive myself, and I put things in motion without being put in motion. Might be wrong because I'm a physical system, but that type of I that feels that, that must be the first state, which seems to be a spirit, a god, whatever you want to call it. Is it a proof? Absolutely not. Does it make sense to me? Hell yeah. <laughs> so we've talked about this a bit, you know, off the mic, that worldviews are everywhere. That, you know, often when, when you come to a, a common political debate or disagreement, you know, whether it's creationism, obviously, but also abortion, animal rights, so often these debates aren't actually about the surface level issues. They're actually about a much, much deeper level, like a, a metaphysical disagreement between two opposing camps. So, I mean, for example, take abortion. You know, you'd be forgiven for thinking it's a debate about medical rights, but I don't think it is. You know, I, I think it's a, it's a debate about metaphysics. It's a disagreement between two competing worldviews. So you kind of kind of a naturalistic conception of life and personhood and freedom against a kind of a religious conception of life and personhood and freedom. So often the debates, you know, a public debate about abortion is completely unproductive because people stay at the surface level issue of talking about medical rights without getting to the deeper, I would call it the metaphysical level of how you actually conceptualize what life is and what people or personhood is. So I'll ask you, you know, how do you think about worldviews? How would you kind of define worldviews? Conceptualize worldviews as those things that are like your deepest or like most sacred things or values in your life. And you cannot eliminate those because they help, they guide you in your behavior, your thinking. They're the prerequisite of behavior. You prefer one thing over another, which motivates you to do one thing instead of another. If you have no values, no motivation, you don't do much. So eliminating them, that's not feasible. However, thinking everyone is able to think the same, that is counterproductive. So I think any productive discussion starts by being explicit or at least transparent in what you believe at you know, one of your most fundamental levels. I think maybe worldview is a set of assumptions we're not willing to give up, even if we have to give up our life, 
And even if in the face of almost the absurdity of life, we'd, we'd cling to these values, they're so important. And we'd rather be, you know, stripped of all rights in a sense than give up on this, because otherwise the world just stops making sense. And maybe this is a bit facetious, but if you realize that those, are, those values are so important and that you can't eliminate them, but you can be transparent, then at least you can be productive in a sense that, well, what do we agree on? And maybe we can combine forces and what do we not agree on? And how do we make sure that in practice, we're not gonna be in each other's way too much? That I think is feasible. So if we take, for example, abortion, that is very difficult to settle with science because the science doesn't tell you how to value a life or whose right is more important. That's at the level of worldview. And if you come from a worldview in which every life is a sacred creation of God, including the baby, then the right of the baby to live is more important than the right of the woman or right to decide about her own body are not right in the context of worldviews. But I hope you get the idea. Those rights trump the right of the woman. Well, if you believe in a naturalistic worldview and you don't think a lump of cells, right, talking from the other side, constitutes life, you think that lump of cells has no rights, what are you talking about? That cannot be settled. But you can, for example, say, well, you can, within your own community of religious people, just uphold the, the general moral that you're not going to participate in abortion. That seems uh, at least a way where you're not in the way of others. And if other people want to make use of it, well, that's up to them. That's between, you know, from the religious perspective, between you and God. We're not going to judge about that. It's difficult, especially if you're very evangelical and you want to convince others and you want to tell others what to do. But I do think it's more productive than just screaming, you like to kill babies or you hate women. That that doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah, I think both sides are so evangelical that both sides have such a deep-seated belief that they're correct, that they, you know, tend to shout over the other side. But I still, as a philosopher, this can be a bit discouraging because I like to think that, you know, reasoned argument and evidence is capable of changing people's minds and is capable of proving, you know, one position better than the other. So, in this case, I'd be arguing for the naturalistic conception of life, which leans towards rights of women over rights of, you know, small numbers of cells. So that's the position, that's the worldview that I'm holding, for instance. So, but I, but as a philosopher, I'd like to think that we can convince people or reason with people to the extent that, that we can make that uh, a cogent position. So how do you feel about worldviews? Do you think that they're deeply entrenched or do you think that, you know, people can change their minds about their deepest attitudes? I think there's two ways in which people can change their mind. The first is very simple. If you tell me your ultimate values and I go through them and I say, well, actually you can say these are your ultimate values and then do this, right? I can change your mind on a practical level without referencing my own values, but simply showing that the behavior you're exhibiting doesn't follow from the values you adhere to, which doesn't tell you you're going to change your behavior, but either you have to, you know, change the claim that you believe these values, or you'll have to change your behavior if you want to be consistent, which is a value of its own, right? For people that do not value the concept of truth, consistency, I think arguments themselves or reason are going to be completely lackluster. That's a prerequisite that there is something more true than another, right? If you don't believe that, it's going to be very hard to talk about anything being better or worse or right or wrong. Another way is simply showing by example or leading by example, which I think is probably how we in general get convinced, not by the arguments, but just by seeing its effectiveness. Like you don't have to be convinced about science by showing that, you know, we don't convince people that science is valuable or anything by showing that it's God dictator or anything. We should just say, look at all the things it made. We like those things. Therefore, if you like those things too, you, it's useful to, you know, do these practices in these and these ways or use these methods. And so what we're simply doing then is saying, regardless of your values, right? If there's some small aspect of those values that values these things, these are the products of these values. Therefore, it might be in your interest to adopt these values. And I don't think that's an argument. I think that's simply almost human nature, right? To, to take up other people, their values. It, it reminds me of what Japan did, right? When Dutch and I think Portuguese, I'm not sure... This is something which you shouldn't quote me on. But when people from Europe came into contact with Japan and they got in touch with, you know, European ways of thinking, they, again, I'm not a historian, but um, I found it really interesting. They sat together and decided, okay, there's clearly something of value in here, but 
you know, some of the root values that make this useful are not going to fit into our structure, right? It's, it's, it's not going to work within our philosophy, but we don't want to, you know, therefore dismiss the whole enterprise, right? And so they took the parts that seemed to work, put them on fertile ground, or transformed them in such a way that they made sense, right? And so they took, you know, the productive parts and left out the, the what you call dogmatic European ways of thinking about it. Now, that seems to be a very productive way of engaging with different cultures where you share, in a sense, in a, in a very deep sense, which is hopefully, I, I think that's very beautiful in a sense. It is. No, it's definitely productive, especially, well, it necessarily involves being critical of your own attitudes and worldviews. You know, I think that so often people aren't aware of their, that they have a worldview, that they have this set of attitudes that underlies all their other beliefs. And I think it's good to come to a conversation by saying, you know, I am coming from this perspective of, in my case, naturalism and maybe scientism about the power of science and also a belief in objective truth. So if people can even reflect on their own set of values, that gives them a springboard to critically engage with the values that they have and maybe changing them if they find some more cogent options out there. I think it's nice to wrap up there. I think you've heard my invitation to optimistic nihilism, even if it's not deductively um, proven. And you've heard Sam's best argument for a theism that accepts supernatural as part of worldviews. And I hope it's also very clear that I agree with a lot of what you say. Like a lot of the things you say, I think those are also part in my way of viewing the world, but I add something on top almost, which I think that if you start with your worldview, you're definitely not far off. I would say you've missed the mark, but you're going in the right direction. So it's not like we're at opposite ends trying to pull each other apart. Mm -hmm. So I'm not too far off track. That's a, that's a good diagnosis. Or, no, the tracks don't diverge too much because I don't know which is the right one. I will be very humble here. Of course, of course. So we've covered lots of ground. We've talked about metaphysics, God and professional gaming. And it's been a pleasure. So thank you, Sam. More than welcome. It was very informative. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Extrapolator is produced and edited by me, Jeff Allen. There's no team behind the podcast, it's just me, and I really appreciate the ongoing support from listeners. It's been wonderful to see the listenership steadily growing and to connect with some of you on social media. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, and please take 30 seconds to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps the podcast to grow. You can also follow me on social media, on Facebook and on Instagram, at ExtrapolatorPod. The artwork for Extrapolator was created by Hugh Allen. The music was written and recorded by me, and it's available on Spotify, Deezer, Apple Music, and all major directories. Just search for Extrapolator, original podcast soundtrack. As always, thanks for listening, and until next time.